The following is rated not safe for work. It contains strong language, adult situations, and lots and lots of spoilers. Discretion is advised. In the criminal justice system, cinematic-based offenses are considered especially heinous. The dedicated attorneys who investigate these villainous films are members of an elite squad known as the Reels of Justice. These are their stories. Order, please, order. The Reels of Justice is now in session. Judge Dylan J. Schlender presiding. We all eyes for the Honorable Judge Schlender. Be seated. Welcome to the Reels of Justice. Today we are hearing the case of The People versus Halloween Ends, a 2022 horror movie capping off the new Halloween trilogy, featuring what promises to be the last confrontation between Michael Myers and Laurie Stroud. For those of you unfamiliar with our court proceedings, we are here to determine if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. As always in this courtroom, films are to be considered excellent until proven awful, and the burden of proof lies upon the prosecution to prove beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt that this film is guilty. Mr. Maynard Bangs, you are representing the prosecution. You may present your opening statement. Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen, the third film in a trilogy, or threequel, as Halloween Ends is, has a heavy burden placed upon its shoulders. To be a successful threequel, there are a lot of things you have to get right. One, you have to be sure to veer wildly away from the narrative established in your prior films. That will keep the audience <laughs> guessing about what might happen next. Two, you have to ignore major characters from the previous entries while also introducing and hastily establishing all new ones so your audience doesn't grow bored with the same old tiresome protagonists. And of course, three, you have to be sure to completely scrap any world building that's been done, because who has time to keep track of all those silly details anyhow? <laughs> and I'm happy to report that Halloween Ends does all of these things, and more, boldly and proudly following in the footsteps of the great threequels before it. Films like Return of the Jedi, which chose to relocate its story from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away to a quaint Cleveland suburb circa 1973. Or The Return of the King, wherein Frodo hands the One Ring down to his never-before-seen nephew Purvis, who must overcome both <laughs> asthma and osteoporosis to destroy the Dark Lord. And who could forget the search for Spock, which retconned the beloved Vulcan's death following his sacrifice at the end of Rathacon? Okay, that last one actually did happen, but I think you get where I'm going with this. And in case you don't, allow me to harp on it relentlessly for the next hour or so. <laughs> I thank you. Thank you, Maynard. Appearing on behalf of the defense is Miss Candice Martellero. Please present your opening statement. I would like to start by making one thing very clear. We are not here today to determine if Halloween Ends is the best movie in the Halloween franchise or even where it ranks. We are simply trying to, to determine if it is a bad movie and it needs to be held accountable as just that on its own merit. This movie was released mere months ago and this will be a difficult film to find a verdict on as everyone who has ever loved a Halloween movie holds that personal and extremely passionate viewpoints on this movie. However, I will argue and prove that this movie on its own is not a bad movie. It is, however, 
a victim of intentionally misleading marketing. And that's my opening statement. All right. Thank All you, right. Candice. Maynard Bangs, you may proceed with your first exhibit. Well, I got to just get right out onto it. This movie focuses entirely on a brand new character named Corey, who basically child slaughtered this kid he was babysitting a few years before. And it's fucked up his entire life. The whole town seems to resent and shun him pretty justifiably, I think, because he was absolutely negligent in his caregiving. And because of this, Corey is angry. Part three has historically been a bad time to introduce all new characters, especially entirely new protagonists. But as the film develops, we see that Corey Cunningham, alliteration intended, is destined to be the heir apparent to Michael Myers. He's set up to become the new boogeyman of Haddonfield. Michael is initially going to kill him, but seeing something in Corey's eyes, maybe that spark of evil, he spares him. And soon he even takes Corey under his wing and teaches him the ways of plunging a knife into someone's chest, I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I never thought that was complicated enough to be worthy of an apprenticeship, but maybe Michael has some sick pointers or something. Anyway, soon Corey is tired of being the student. He takes Michael's mask and the passing of the torch is complete. Now this 24-year-old crybaby who was being routinely beaten up by scrawny high school seniors two days before begins killing dickloads of people who have hurt him with his bare hands. What a turnaround. Now, I'll give this to the defense. I like that idea, the passing of the torch. Michael is old. He doesn't have long to live. And the evil has to find a way to endure. And the logical thing is to pass it to another person. But the problem is Corey is a completely new character introduced at the beginning of this film. If he'd been introduced in the first film in the trilogy and we could have seen his descent into evil over time, we may have had some investment into his and Allison's future. But because he's brand spanking new, everything about Corey has to be rushed. I mean, he and Allison's relationship moves fast. They know each other for like less than a week and they're already talking about moving away together. All right, um, Candace, would you like to address uh, any of the points that Mr. Banks brought up in regards to Corey? Yes. First and foremost, I would like to note that it is not the first time in a Halloween franchise movie for a new character to be introduced in the beginning. This is a common thing that happens throughout the franchise and the many different timelines of movies if you follow them. So I don't feel it's fair to hold this movie accountable for doing that. It's not the first time it has happened. Second, I would argue that I feel the arc, not I feel, I would argue that the arc between Corey and Allison makes complete sense. It's very heightened circumstances. They're dealing with an evil town <laughs> that is imploding on them, a slasher that's afoot. And granted, Corey is working with him, but Allison does not know that. She's also gone through hella trauma. Like, all of her friends are dead. Her mom is dead. Her dad is dead. Pretty much everyone she knows but her grandmother is dead. She's working a dead-end job with people who suck. So, I don't know. The whole trajectory of her meeting Corey and immediately being like, hey, yeah, you seem all right. I think I'm going to move away with you completely tracks for me. I think there's enough character development there that it works. All right, uh, Mr. Banks, would you like to redirect or would you like to move on? Well, I'll let the the kind of jury chew on that where they think that that relationship is super rushed. Uh, uh, the slasher, Michael Myers, he's not afoot at when they first meet, um, right? Corey gets his hand injured with some glass and Lori introduces the two because Allison is a nurse and she removes the glass and she's immediately like, into this dude the first time he sees him. So I don't know, maybe the guy who plays him is really hot. I'm not a good judge of that. I don't know. 
uh, someone please let me know if he is really hot or not. I, I didn't think he was, but um, maybe the nerdy glasses thing works for some people. Um, but but because of all this development we have to do for this brand new character to kind of get up to speed, um, because as you mentioned, new characters are introduced in every movie, but they're not usually entirely new, totally main characters. I mean, this movie is about core Objection. Objection. Jamie Lloyd, pretty new. Which film is that? That'd be Halloween 4. She's introduced. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. She, she is uh, the thing. But... This is like the third part of a trilogy, right? So I think we all expected the third part of the story established in in 2018 and Kills. Okay. I, so I think that's what kind of throws people for a loop. But but let's let's close the magnitude of how much this film focuses on Corey. Corey doesn't just he gets not only double the screen time of Laurie Strode. And it's calculated out. He gets over an hour of screen time. Laurie Strode has about a half hour of full screen time in this movie. He gets six times the screen time of Michael. And even when he's not on the screen, everyone's talking about him. The first 90 minutes of this less than two hour movie is entirely about Corey. So now imagine you're the audience because you probably were and you show up expecting to see the conclusion of the saga of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode as introduced in 2018 and kills, maybe even expecting to see Lori hunt down and kill Michael in retaliation for her daughter. And instead you get waylaid by this plot about this entirely new character you'd never seen before, who isn't particularly well acted either. And it's like, this is the cinematic equivalent to catfishing. Objection. (laughs) I expected that. (laughs) A well acted, A, that's very subjective, but B, I would argue otherwise because Corey Cunningham is mapped very directly over Arnie Cunningham Cunningham Mm. from the movie Christine. He's um, reenacting that actor's portrayal. Forgive me, I'm not uh, bringing it up off the top of my head. Um, But he is reenacting that actor's portrayal of that character. So I wouldn't say it's bad acting. It's very melodramatic, but that's intentional. Okay, that's... That's fair. I, I, I can't get too much into acting. I'm not an uh, acting coach, so I can't really argue it. But I'm not the only one. Some critics I know also cited his performance as poor, but I guess they're not acting coaches either. Um, but going to the marketing point that was brought up, I, I absolutely agree. The marketing is partially responsible for this catfish. The trailer especially gives you no inclination that this movie is going to be about Corey. It instead frames Corey to be an early victim of Michael, frames all the killings as being done by Michael. It's actually borderline false advertising because it it presents a very vengeful Laurie, a still rampaging Michael, and barely includes Corey at all. I would argue that you are correct. But I would also argue that is part of what makes this movie so brilliant. That misdirect was intentional. This, in early interviews with Jamie Lee Curtis, before they even started filming, she said openly, this movie will be very divisive. She knew. The director knew. It was very deliberate. And what makes that interesting is this is not a movie for the fans. This is a movie that refuses to be a movie made by internet committee. And it stands on its own merit of whether it's a good or bad movie. Well, sometimes the the internet is right. Remember that first Sonic trailer? Remember how bad that looked? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they're right. Now I want to agree. Now, 
partially. A movie about the torch being passed from one boogeyman to the next is a cool idea. I was frankly here for it for most of the movie. I mean, even as Laurie says, evil doesn't die. It changes shape. Great mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. But then the movie decides to disregard everything it did itself by killing Corey off halfway through the third act. He goes to kill Laurie. She shoots him and he's basically done. What the hell? It was never that easy to kill Michael. So what did Corey not really inherit whatever supernatural power has kept Michael going? Because Michael seems to get stronger the more he kills. We see that when he kills the cop in the sewer, he's initially struggling to breathe. And as he stabs him, he stands up more straight. He's able to leave the sewer for the first time in who knows how long. Did Corey not get any of that? Did the evil really change shape then? Because now this just feels more like a copycat in a mask than an heir to Michael's evil powers. Well, let's be clear. I'd say the movie makes a pretty good argument for the fact that the whole town of Haddonfield is really the villain. Corey is just part of that. And also, let's be clear that it's Michael Myers himself who kills off Corey, which just feeds into the lore of Michael Myers even though the movie wasn't really about Michael specifically. I mean, I think he puts a final button on to it, but I think even if Michael didn't come in and snap his neck, if we mm -hmm. just left that kid lying there, he would have eventually bled out. He he stabbed himself yeah. right in the juggler, you know? Yeah. The juggler. <laughs> Judge. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, in his last breath, Corey stabs himself in the throat so he can frame Lori for killing him because Allison's about to walk in. Forget that the bullets would be traceable back to Lori's gun. This dude basically kills people and himself for a girl he just met four days ago. That's about as hard a simping as it gets. And that's when we see this whole Corey angle isn't really about passing a torch. It's about creating dissension and sowing mistrust between Allison and Laurie, presumably to make Allison storm away and leave Laurie vulnerable to Michael. But that doesn't matter anyway, because Allison comes right back when she realizes her grandmother's in danger and they both kill Michael together. So not only was this a waste of the first 90 minutes of this movie, it's a waste of a perfectly good idea they had. This could have been the first movie in the Corey Cunningham Halloween saga. But no, instead, Michaels comes back for the last 10 minutes of the movie to engage in hand to hand combat with Laurie. And it's close. I know he's old, but Christ, so is she. So why why did we do this? Why did we focus on this guy just to kill him rather than tell a story about Michael and Laurie or have started a whole new story with him? Well, I would still argue that it is a movie about Laurie. It's a movie about trauma, and I think that's exemplified in Corey being killed off the way that he was and also how Allison and Laurie have been processing that trauma. In addition, I would also, to your point about it being close, the fact that it's close is what makes that fight scene work so well. It echoes back to the 1978 film. There's many moments there where it's close. She stabs him in the eye with a coat hanger. There's points where they're, you know, right on top of each other fighting. It gets close. Michael at one point goes to stab Lori in the original and completely misses her on the couch. It, there's points where it's close. Well, now they're both decrepit. It probably should be. It probably should be a little, <laughs> a little less interesting. And Laurie took some cheap shots in that first one. I saw. I was watching. All um, right, let's move on, Mister B. <laughs> I will move on. I've got a a a small little rapid fire bullet points of other things that bothered me. Um, All right. You know, the previous two films both took place on the same night, Halloween 2018. Uh, but Halloween ends choose to instead fast forward four years to Halloween 2022, completely missing the opportunity to create this trilogy contained all in one night. 
And that immediately made it feel incongruous or separate from the other two, not a part of the trilogy. Um, and this is interesting. There's an extended cut of Halloween Kills with a scene at the end where Lori calls her daughter, hears Michael, and knows exactly what happens, and she vows revenge. And apparently that scene contains her leaving the hospital that night to seemingly hunt Michael down. And that was, I guess, taken out because they realized they weren't going to go with that version of the third film. Um, but I, I really wish we had seen it all self-contained in one night. Um, nitpicky. Objection. I object because <laughs> it's just tough to believe that Lori is well aware that her daughter just died. And she's like, the only thing I'm focused on is getting Michael Myers. There's not a moment of grief or like a moment of sadness. It's just like, I'm going to get him. I mean, maybe. And that, that kind of runs into the next thing is in Halloween 2018, we see Lori Strode has become very paranoid over the years. She's literally built her house into a fortress, a trap she set for Michael. And she lived this way for almost 40 years while Michael was securely institutionalized, just on the off chance that he might escape. And then after Michael does escape 40 years later and goes on a rampage that kills both her daughter and son-in-law, he dies in the first movie. And like 30 other fucking people, <laughs> Halloween Ends wants us to believe Lori has decided now, of all times, to, quote, live with love and trust and not let fear rule her life. After her very justified fear has isolated her from her family for decades, now when caution would seem like the most sensible course of action and protecting her granddaughter should be her highest priority, she decides not to. That seems a little backwards to me. It's not like Michael's even seemingly dead at the end of the last movie. She knows he's still at large and his whereabouts are unknown. So why is she now so lackadaisical? You just nailed it. It's because her daughter was killed. Her daughter, all she wanted was a normal life. And Lori objectively was outright abusive based off of her own fear. She kept her daughter isolated. It, there's a lot of places she talked down to her, all sorts of stuff. And all her daughter wanted, I mean, she's wearing a Christmas sweater through the whole exchange <laughs> on Halloween night. Like all she wants is normalcy. I think grief can sometimes change a person's complete outlook on things. If anything is going to change Lori to understand that maybe you just have to live life and take your chances a little bit, it would be losing her daughter. See, I, but her fear was completely justified. She was right in doing what her, she did to her daughter because Michael <laughs> was going to escape. She wasn't crazy. I mean, you don't have to be wrong to be paranoid, right? Sometimes the government really is listening to you. Um, <laughs> like, and that's where Lori lies is like, she was right. So could she not just like maybe put grief aside for one more night and go and get Michael killed that very mm -hmm. night? I don't know. Um, she does say at the end, I like this line, she says, after they finally kill Michael Myers, she says, you know, she's writing her memoirs. And one of the last lines of her memoir is, there'd be no tombstone, no memorial. The mysteries were put to bed and the stories we told would fade with time. Which, you know, is why she's writing a memoir about it. I, I always write memoirs. <laughs> I always write memoirs about things I intend people to forget about. Um, and uh, oh, And lastly... God. But what was Michael doing for those four years? The prior two films lead us to believe he was always just trying to get home. And now we see in Halloween Ends, the Myers house has been demolished. So what is Michael's goal now exactly? Why is he still killing people? Why is he in Haddonfield? Why is he still seemingly obsessed with Laurie Strode? How has he been living in a drain pipe for four years? What does he eat? Rats? Hobos? Is Michael a cannibal now? I have so many questions, and I don't even think the movie knows for sure, but... 
I, I don't understand why the, this director would veer so far away from his own two movies he made prior. He directed and co-wrote all three of these. And why he would start retconning and throwing out the things he had set up in his first two is is really just baffling to me. And with that, the prosecution will rest. All right. Thank you, Maynard Banks. Uh, Miss Martella. Martella. <laughs> mm. All right. Let me try this again. Montalero. Miss Montalero. See, I have to do it in Italian. It's the only way. Uh, you, you can present your first exhibit. I would like to note what I said in my opening statement. I am basing this movie on its own merit, and I would like to cite Halloween franchise expert and critic Jimmy Champagne, who's made a good observation that there is something for everybody in each one of these movies. They are almost, they are so objectively different from each other. I'm talking about specifically the most recent trilogy, 2018 Kills and Ends. Each movie is almost a different subgenre of horror. With that being said, it makes sense that he would throw away conventions that were in the first two. Also, to argue a counterpoint, I would say that it's objective that Michael Myers, it's been established in Halloween Kills and Halloween 2018 that we don't actually know what Michael's coming back for. Everyone assumed he was going back to the house. That was Loomis's crazy idea, but Loomis was nuts. Uh, Lori was determined to believe he was obsessed with her, but that was disproven in Halloween Kills through the whole monologue scene with Allison and uh, Karen both being interrogated and having the interviews diverge because Allison witnessed a whole different set of things that happened with Dr. Sartain than what Karen witnessed. We don't actually know why Michael's back. That's part of what makes Michael so daunting is he's this mysterious figure. No one knows what he what he's like. He's animal-like. So I would make that point. Uh, yeah, any I mean, response I don't, to that, I, Mr. Banks? I don't think, uh, yeah, I agree that none of these movies really give you any idea of why Michael would come in. I never agreed with the him trying to go home theory because he never, he seems to be perfectly content with chasing down Laurie in the original 78 version. So, um, you know, I, I think he had the opportunity to go home and, and then chose to leave it to go kill. Um, but yeah, we, we, we really don't know what his purpose is. It does seem like he really enjoys killing, though, like uh, because he seems rejuvenated by it. Yes, it does seem like he goes dormant, and then the opportunity to kill presents itself, and he comes back to life. I see Michael Myers as a more mythical figure, which I think is exemplified well in the movie of basically all the evil in the town is Michael Myers spreading out. He's more of a a figure than an actual person with an actual motivation, which is also why he can't die until the end. Now, I think that, you know, you've talked about the, the town being evil, and I don't know if that's what I caught from this movie. Um, they're all seemingly victims of Michael's evil, where that creates paranoia and distrust amongst themselves. But we see at the end that once they get Michael, they all seem to be able to come together and grind his body up, which I'm not sure that's legal. Um, <laughs> uh, but they say that in the movie too. But like, I mean, they wouldn't have gotten away with doing that to like Saddam Hussein. And this is just some dude in a, in a mask, um, you know, and, uh, yeah, that whole parade thing is weird. Do they have a group text message where they're like, get outside. They're driving Michael's corpse around on a roof. We got to go. Um, <laughs> the community yeah, Facebook group. Please. Continue. I don't see the town as evil. I mean, there's naughty bad kids in it. There's bad kids in every town, but. I'm um, not even including the bullies. 
the montage at the very beginning of all of the ways the different evil back to your original point about Corey accidentally murdering that child that's one place the woman that hung herself she was the mother of the the kid that died with the the stake that went through his jaw in the first one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it opens with her hanging herself and there's even a point where um uh, i'm trying to remember, hawkins makes a statement of like this isn't michael he wouldn't do this that's evil and also, like, Lori and Allison are bullied through the whole movie by the town. They've started these vicious rumors about them of, like, you teased Michael Myers. He was a mentally ill person, and you teased him, and that's why my family's dead. It's your fault. It's evil incarnate in all these different ways that are justifiable. But it's the whole town of Haddonfield is its own villain. But, I mean, murders and suicides happen in, in basically every town. I wouldn't I wouldn't say every town's evil. Um and as far as the town, I, I can understand the town turning against Lori. Uh, I mean, she didn't, she lived away from town, though. She did live on the outskirts of town. Not at the um, point where they're bullying her, though. No, no, I'm, I'm saying, like, she didn't really try to lure them to Haddonfield. She was living on the outskirts of Haddonfield. Oh, yes, so not, yeah, yeah. So it's not like she was actually trying to bring Michael to town. She was trying to isolate herself uh, yeah. initially. Less so now. <laughs> so yeah. now she doesn't care if Michael comes back and slaughters everyone together. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if I, I see the town as incarnate. It's it's certainly a, infected by Michael's evil. But I don't think it makes them evil. I think it makes them victims of evil. I think it makes them scared. Well, I think we're arguing the same thing, essentially. Um, Haddonfield is what I'm saying is evil. It's almost Stephen King-esque, which is intentional as this movie is mapped over Christine, which was Carpenter's early movies. Um, mm-hmm. one of his early movies. Uh, yep. So I would argue that the town is evil. The people in the town become a bunch of victim blamers based on their own pain. It's just evil infesting on evil on evil from their own pain and hurt and trauma that they're trying to process. All right. Uh, any further points you'd like to bring up, Candace? One One point I do want to make is I feel like you actually didn't bring this up in your argument, but it is one that comes up commonly is that Michael Myers is barely in this movie at all. And I would like to point out that in the 1978 Carpenter movie, he's actually in the movie less. He's in the movie, according to um, Screen Rant and a couple other sources. I don't really want to credit Screen Rant, but that is where I got this information. Um, <laughs> I hate them so much. Um, anyway, according to sources, he is in the original <laughs> movie for nine minutes and 37, 37 seconds. seconds. Yes. Yep. And then and in he's, this in, movie, he's in this one, yeah. 10 minutes and 55 seconds. Yes. Say, I do my homework too, counselor. Um, Now, I'd agree with that, but the difference to me between the original and while Michael is not on screen in the 78 original, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's suffocating. He's potentially lurking behind any tree, any bush. Your eye is always darting out looking for him. He's the focus. He's the constant menace in the background. So while he is not officially on screen for anything longer than 10 minutes, I think we'd all say he's the focus of the movie. He's, like I said, ever present. Whereas in this one, Michael is mostly hiding in a sewer most of the time. He's not ever present. He's like unconscious in a sewer a good amount of time. He's just hiding down there. It's it's Corey who's ever present in this one. Um, not in the background, though, quite in the foreground. Well, I would argue that sometimes it is in the background and deliberately so. There, there's points where it's a direct homage to the first one where he comes out and scares Lori in a shot that's almost shot for shot out of the first mm-hmm. one where she sees Michael behind the bush, only this time it's Corey. 
I kind of um, thought that shot was stupid. It was like, why are you standing out there, Corey? <laughs> it was like he knew. Yeah. It was like he knew. Michael told him to do it. Yeah, exactly. It was like, Show me what to do. Well, first, you got to hang out around bushes and stare a lot. Chicks love when you stare, man. <laughs> exactly um, what Michael's teaching. All right. Order in the court, please. <laughs> hey. The other- all right. <laughs> Getting too rowdy. We're getting heated. We're fighting. Mm-hmm. But I'm calming it down. Um, the other point I would like to make is that this movie is deliberately trying to piss you off. And I don't know if that necessarily makes it a bad movie, though. The The opening font and the closing font is intentionally the same font as Season of the Witch, which at the time it came out was hated for the same reasons. It broke away from the anthology or it broke away from the original story to be an anthology. And granted, I understand the counter argument that like that's an entirely different thing where this is still wor- living within the world of Michael Myers. But I would also argue it is doing the same thing. It is a self-contained story within the Michael Myers lore. See, my feeling is Season of the Witch, it is self-contained. Um, uh, I think they even were in marketing. Told you this wasn't going to be about Michael. It's going to be a, it, we're, we're just doing another story on Halloween using that name. That's what we see the franchise going. So... I see that as something self-contained to me. My understanding was this was part three of a singular story. Uh, It needed to have cohesiveness and connectivity to 2018 and kills. It should have been the next step of that story, which to me was perfectly set up, right? Lori's ready for vengeance. The town is, is all rallied and ready to get this guy um, and put an end to this with some finality. And, the the swerve of this it's meant to piss you off i mean most of it didn't piss me off um till they killed off Corey, and then i was pissed off because i felt like we wasted 90 minutes um so i I don't know about intentionally pissing off seemingly it worked for a lot of people um (laughs) but it's it's not them focusing a story on Corey that pisses me if this was just a whole standalone movie you know halloween seven or something uh whatever they'd want to call it uh, and it wasn't connected to this trilogy, I probably would have less problems with it. My problem is this, this to me, with the expectation was this was supposed to be part three of the story beats set up in one and two in the trilogy. And their departure of that, I think, is something that makes it bad. Gotcha. I have no, <laughs> I have no further remarks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Both sides have rested their cases. The attorneys will now present their closing arguments. Maynard Bangs, you may begin. Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I know sometimes we talk about the alternate timelines we could be living in, but... We do that a lot, don't we? (laughs) Man, it really pains me to know that somewhere out in the swirling cosmic abyss of infinite possibilities, there is a universe where they have a really awesome Halloween requel trilogy. One that takes place like all in one night and a bit of the following morning, documenting Michael's swath of destruction almost in real time. Maybe Corey's character would have been introduced in the first film as the troubled love interest of Allison, who initially is a suspect because of his past, maybe even gets targeted by that lynch mob in the second movie, only to finally get fed up and supplant Michael as the new boogeyman. He gets Michael's mask, possesses all of his supernatural powers, kills Allison and goes on to star in his own Halloween films. And Laurie, after spending 40 years hiding, 
getting ready to challenge Michael, finds herself losing everyone she cares about at his and Corey's hands, ultimately coming to understand that evil truly doesn't die, it only changes shape and lives on. That probably would have been pretty cool. I don't know why we didn't do any of that. I think they thought about it, but in the end, they didn't do it. And it's a damn shame. All right. Thank you. Miss Martellero, please present your closing argument. <laughs> I really want sparkling cider now. <laughs> I would like to say, back to my original point, that this movie is only meant to function on its own merit. While it is not a movie that the audience expected or one that everyone wrote in their heads, it could stand out as a movie to the test of time that is very good in the way that Season of the Witch has developed its own cult following. All right, Especially in you. this courtroom, huh? Oh, my God. <laughs> the less said, the better. <laughs> thank you all, members of the jury, Mr. Dylan J. Schlender, Mr. Big Ben Haslar, and Mr. I've run from you. I have chased you. I have tried to contain you. I have tried to forgive you. I thought maybe you were the boogeyman. No, you're just Ryan Luis Rodriguez. You have heard the facts concerning the case. It is now up to you to determine if this film is guilty of being a bad movie. The bailiff will escort you to the deliberation room to render your verdict. Do you think this title constitutes a legally binding pledge, or is this some kind of Friday the 13th final chapter thing? <laughs> oh god Too I astute hope for the legally binding. <laughs> oh please be legally binding yeah he, he's been paying attention <laughs> all right let's try it's time to end this thing uh <laughs> dylan what did you think of the cases i thought we had two very good cases uh today uh maynard banks came out swinging as he usually does but candace was able to respond uh quite intelligently to a lot of the points i never thought of the movie as being um like a carrie analog so i thought that was uh, not carrie excuse me a christine analog the other woman that uh <laughs> <laughs> King wrote about you know uh, they all look the same to you don't they Dylan? <laughs> well all the cars do that's for sure <laughs> Well, that's the other thing. That's what's kind of funny, though, because then Maynard talks about how confused this movie is. Christine's a very confused book. Is the car haunted or is it haunted by the guy who used to own it? Even Stephen King wasn't particularly sure. And never mind the narrative structure change. Halfway <laughs> but that's through another book. trial. Well, that's another thing altogether. Uh, yeah, I, I uh, just I just got to say, I just agree with Maynard. I was expecting this to be the final punch of the trilogy. And they yeah. kind of started a whole new thing. And I was like. Oh, okay, I get it. They're going to pass the torch, and that's how they justify making more movies. And then they completely nip that in the bud. And I was like, I don't understand what's going on. And then Michael Myers is ground up in a car compactor shredder, and the, the credits roll. So I was, I was so wanting. Would you agree that it's a bad, it's a bad threequel? But do you think it's a bad movie on its own? I think it is a bad movie on its own because you can't ignore the other movies before it. You can't really watch it. Uh, in a vacuum. I mean, even if you wanted, to, it, it's if nothing else, it's dependent on the original Halloween. You know, like there, there's no way to watch it independently, and that was a choice uh, they made. If they wanted to do something like Halloween three season of the witch, they totally could have, but they opted not to do that. They tied tied it to these other movies and then fumbled. I'd like to hear from Ryan though. So uh, this is easily the best of the requel trilogy. Boom. Disagree. What? Disagree. It's a, it's a very low bar to clear. 
But I will say, in this movie's defense, which I don't have a lot to say in its defense, is that it's interesting. That is yeah. kind of damning with faint praise. To say that a movie is interesting does not necessarily mean that it's good in any way, and I don't think that this is a good movie. But the thing is, is that it would actually be a little more interesting if it was actually remotely scary, which it's not. Like, there's not a single moment where I actually sat up in my chair and go, oh, Oh, that was wow! That was You're surprising. <laughs> and I and I'm a very antsy person, as we all know. I'm always very puss. squirrely. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is um, this is just it's not a good movie, guys. It's just it's not. I mean, Corey, uh, more like mopey, meaty face. I cannot yeah. stand Corey. I mean, you know, you're a sad sack when the band kids beat you up. It's just—it's it, a new level of pathetic. This character that I'm supposed to follow around this bruised puppy dog for an hour and a half, and then he just stabs himself in the throat. It's like, okay, so what? Well, well, huh? Huh? What was that? I. But you, you do like it for being interesting. Like how much of this, like new passing the torch uh, sort of plot line that they swerve with? How much of the movie did that grab you with? You know, that's a good question. Um. It's, I mean, that's easily the most interesting part of the movie is his kind of uh, either progression or degression, if you will. But it, it, I don't know, it's just the way that it's executed, I don't think that it, it carries off very well. And it just, it, it feels very tonally confused, which is, again, not necessarily a bad thing that, that often enhances interestingness. But this feels like a complete misfire on almost every single level. Like, I don't hate it. But I don't even come close to liking it. You know, I don't want to speak for Ryan, but it's interesting the first time. You can't rewatch this. Oh movie yeah, and I can't have watch this interest. movie again. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, right. that, that's the thing. It, it, when they're stringing you along with like, oh, hey, this could be different, and then when it's not, I, then I just I, immediately I I to cycle see... back to the beginning, and I'm like, okay, so whatever. So I don't. Yeah, I failed to see. The, I failed to see the replay value, especially if you want to watch the whole new trilogy as a set. Like, you could leave this one off and not lose anything. It's just. It's just so bizarre. Then you have to end on yeah, kills, and that movie sucks, too. You've wasted four hours of your life by rewatching 2018 and kills. Uh, yeah, well, I don't want to watch those either. I don't like any of these movies. I'm locking in guilty, and hats off to the defense. They did the best they could, but it's just it's just not there. Well, no, good, good cases given on both sides, but For I sure. think that the movie itself is kind of reprehensible. So I'm also going to lock in. I'm going to go guilty. Big Ben, it's down to you. <laughs> Except uh, that it's not. Yeah, it does not. Um, I I don't want it to be unanimous because I do like the seed of an interesting idea that they had, but I do agree it doesn't play out. It it, it should. It's anticlimactic uh, for both stories, for both uh, the new Michael and the old Michael. That's another uh, good point too. They could have at least made it, Michael interesting if that's what they were going to do. But he's in a sewer the whole time, like Maynard said. <laughs> If it he had a pet alligator, or was it crocodiles of the stores, right? Give him a pet crocodile <laughs> that's bringing them people. No, you had it right before. It's alligators. Is it an alligator? Yeah. Well, who knows? Give them both. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, it doesn't complete the narrative saying. from the previous <laughs> movie. So, yeah, I was really expecting from kills, like, you know, something was going to happen. Like, they were going with this, uh, going somewhere with this. And then I was okay with them changing 
the path, but it, it doesn't complete the trilogy. Uh, they need to, if they're going to swerve, they need to also complete the trilogy. I also very much agree with the idea that if it were like Halloween seven or some other, you know, one out there, if it was episodic, you know, if it was like a sequel to Halloween, but didn't have anything else in its uh, continuity, it probably would have worked uh, if they, you know, planned it out that way, but they didn't. So unfortunately I'm also going to have to go. I was gonna say, it doesn't seem like they planned anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you going to go tell some handsome judge? Oh, the foreman has Oh, yes, let's, let's tell that handsome judge. <laughs> Thank you. Very handsome. Oh, you guys. Mr. Foreman, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. In the case of the people versus Halloween ends, we find the defendant guilty. <laughs> Boo. Okay, no! very good. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, st- uh, all the Michael Myers in the crowd. That's why everyone's quiet. They all, they all stood up and walked up. They did. All right, order, order of the court. The verdict is so rendered. The this Halloween trilogy will be subject to another bootcon. Bootcon. Thank no, you. No. Featuring every fan theory ever proposed. Court is adjourned. No. I want to change my verdict. <laughs> This is Mumbly Mumblerson reporting to you from outside the reels of justice. Maynard Banks, would you care to share your asinine thoughts on the jury's verdict? I guess I would, Mumbly. Um, this one brought me no pleasure because unlike members of the jury, I like Halloween 2018. And I like Halloween Kills, even though I prosecuted it. Uh, or even though I defended it. I defended it. And uh, I defended it. So I liked Halloween Kills. And part of my defense of Halloween Kills was the potential they'd set up to follow up with their sequel. And so I think that's why it personally offended me when, uh, you know, maybe the defense was right. I was writing a movie in my head. But the movie I wrote in my head was a lot better than the movie they wrote. So they should have done the movie I wrote in my head. Um, And, yeah, so, uh, but, uh, I mean, part of me deep down does kind of like this movie. Um, I do like the passing of the torch thing. Maybe I just have to turn it off in the last 10 minutes and, and pretend that Corey goes on to kill everyone and lives happily ever after. Thank you, you big dumb idiot. Here comes Candace Martellero, I guess. Excuse me, can we get a word on how you feel about today's verdict as if I care? Uh, a grave injustice has happened today. This movie, uh, I will be demanding an appeal. <laughs> this movie... <laughs> Has, uh, this, movie will, <laughs> this movie will stand up to the test of time. It's the fact that it was held accountable for fan theories and fan appreciation not being granted is not right. Thank you very much. That's all we have from the courthouse today. Let's go back to the studio for post-trial analysis. I'm going to go get a drink. I can't stand you people. <laughs> we love Mumbly, don't oh, we? Poor Mumbly. <laughs> He's such a happy uh, guy. Um, you know, Candace uh, is right, because everyone hates this movie, and 20 years from now, kids are going to be like, it's actually the best one, and everyone's going to buy into it. <laughs> and Reels of Justice 3000 is going to put it on trial again. That's what's going to happen. It's robot versions <laughs> kids of are all be of us. It. <laughs> it's robot versions of all of us, except it's still Ben. Yeah, um, he's, he's the only living one because I'm already a robot. Well, you take pretty good care of yourself. Um, and uh, and Candace, our court of appeals is really backed up. <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> just, a 
about everyone who wants to come back. Uh, so, uh, but fun trial, and and I'm glad that you took on what I think is a very difficult case. Um, now, what is yeah? I don't envy. I don't envy the position you found yourself in. So, no uh, kidding. So well, well done. done. No, well oh, done. Very well yeah. done. Thank you so much. And uh, truth be told, I think for me, what happened is I, so many people, I saw it 24 hours after it came out and I saw so many people hating it that I came in with my expectations, I think so low that I was like, (laughs) that was great. I don't know what everyone's (laughs) problem is. Uh, (laughs) Yes. We call that the Tusk effect. Oh, oh, I was just thinking yes. of Tusk. Uh, yes, I was I just thinking of Tusk. I was yeah. also thinking of, I was also kind of thinking of cats. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, but I think, I don't know, there's another one where that happened. But I like the, I like Tusk effect. Um, so what have you been up to lately? Uh, what's been keeping you busy? I have been working, well, I've got kind of two things going on. I'm a writer for a YouTube channel series called CZ's World Horror History that, mm-hmm. It takes different horror characters from different famous franchises and gives the whole history of that character as if they're a real person from start to finish. Sweet. Um, Very cool. That's been a lot of fun. And then I'm um, a producer on a series with uh, Dana Gould, who wrote on The Simpsons, called Hanging with Dr. Z, where he is Dr. Zayas, like from Planet of the Oh, outstanding. Yeah. So good. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You've seen it? (laughs) Yes. I love it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I, we're working on season three of that right now. Yeah, as uh, as fans of Mystery Science Theater, we're pretty big fans of uh, Dana Gould as well. Oh, awesome. Um, plus, uh, uh, you know... We, well, Ben's I, just a big fan of ape makeup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I met him at a Comic-Con. Uh, I've met him a few times, but I, my favorite is I met him at a Comic-Con and uh, Frank Dietz introduced me to him. And, you know, we kind of said hello, exchanged pleasantries, and we went our separate ways. And I ended up going over to a Godzilla merchandise table to just look at the old Godzilla merchandise. And I look right over next to me, and there's Dana. And we're all basically staring at all the same Godzilla toys. And I'm like, that makes sense. And so, and I talked to him about Godzilla for a while. He probably loved that. Like, yeah, someone to nerd out with is always, he'll do it in a second. <laughs> yeah, it was a good time. I know Frank as well. Yeah, yeah, we love Frank Dietz. Frankie D, uh, friend of the podcast. Such a great guy. Uh, Come back on the show, Frank, damn it. Yeah, we scared him away. We'll let you win next time. We promise. We promise. Whatever it is, we'll let you win. He he came and defended one of his favorite movies, Grizzly, and we we tore it up something awful. (laughs) But I think we can get him back. We'll we'll have to talk to him. Uh, Time heals all wounds. Um, Now, as far as the CZ horror, um, you, you know, how granular do you get? I mean, besides the big guys, like I'm sure Pinhead and and like Michael Myers, like what's like the most obscure character you've done the whole history of? Uh, well, this isn't me personally because he has a couple different writers, um, mm-hmm. and he writes a lot of them himself. The host does. Um, right now, he's doing a scary. What is it? Scary stories to tell in the dark. To tell in yes, the dark. <laughs> thank you. I was like, I don't know what this is called. Yeah, and uh, that I've really been enjoying that. I think as far as ones I've written. He's actually covered the Halloween franchise pretty in depth. And I think my favorite that I wrote was probably about Jamie Lloyd, which I pulled out in this. Um, uh, full uh, circle. <laughs> yes. I and, like Halloween uh, floor. I, I, it's, it's okay. Like I, I enjoyed it. And then um, I think probably the one that's doing the best is I wrote an episode on Isla Kastner from The Conjuring, the most recent Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Mm, okay. Is she the weird, like, um, cult, cult lady that, yes. that they 
mm-hmm, they run into. And it's so funny to me because I wouldn't, I wouldn't think anyone would even know that character like by name. And yet, out of all the videos I've written for him, I think that one's probably doing the best. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I kind of remember that movie. I remember I remember being like, why are they fighting demons now instead of ghosts? They were always fighting ghosts before. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it was a fun movie. Um, now we always ask for recommendations from our guests for movies that you think people should see. So what is a movie that you think people should see? This is not new by any means, but I always recommend It Follows. Nice, great. It yeah. is a good one. Yeah. It's my so what do you like about it? I love the. F- I mean, first of all, I love that it's low budget. And it's a movie that genuinely makes me feel scared. Like I have to like keep the light on at night type of thing after I watch it. And it's, it feels like a pretty original idea. I mean, the idea of a curse being passed on isn't original, but doing it this specific way, I haven't seen up until recently. I really hadn't seen anything quite like that in that specific way. So. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one. And I like that it makes you constantly look in the background. Yes. Um, Kind of similar to the Halloween discussion we had earlier about the original Halloween. Like you're always looking in the yeah. background to see if it it's walking somewhere or you're always paranoid of any figure you see walking. Like some of them may not be it following. <laughs> it might just be a guy walking <laughs> really slowly. I oh, think that's also annoying. what I like about it follows is it has a sense of humor about it where like the people look crazy when they're like, is that the thing? And they're like, no, that's just a guy walking by. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, my sciatica is acting up. That's all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's an ingenious idea, and that's definitely why it's it's gotten so much into the the zeitgeist and and always gets cited as a as a great one. Kind of in keeping, we we watched Smile uh, this yes. weekend, and it kind of it kind of was like a, a less inspired. It follows. Um, that's exactly I t- what I said. <laughs> the word yeah. you look for is derivative, Maynard. <laughs> sure, derivative. Yeah, I mean, I did like the the girl that got to do the the poster smile. She has a great smile. She has a great yes. creepy smile. So creepy. She she earns her pay there. Um, but yeah, it, it it was, and and then I think the depressing ending is kind of exactly what you expect. So it's it's very pain by numbers. That's how I, I felt. It was very predictable. Where it was every big scare, I was like, oh, here comes the jump scare, and you know. Stuff like that. Yeah. Where I like every horror movie nowadays, though. I mean, that's true, but yeah. I like jump scares because they're the only thing that actually work on me. Like, <laughs> like Doom doesn't work on me, or like you know, Dread. I I don't feel those. Um, so you just got to kind of surprise me. Yeah, for me, it's still Wild very noises. invasive surgery. Uh, no, thank oh, you. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Anything that's like torture porn, I'm not into it. Mm-hmm. That's all the invasive surgery I've been doing on you secretly, Shalenzo, and that's, that's what's You know, that tracks. Me. Speaking of tracking, Maynard, you were the prosecutor. What's your recommendation this week? Very, very smooth and subtle there. <laughs> does it track? Think, um, uh, or does it? So recommend- how that doesn't track, let's track it. <laughs> <laughs> my recommendation this week is a movie I've been looking forward to and finally got to see recently, 2022's Pearl directed by Ty West. This is a, uh, no, it's T West. Damn it. I always say the backwards thing. No, you had it right. It is Ty. God damn it. I always say the backwards (laughs) one. This is a prequel to West movie X, which I have previously recommended and production for it began as soon as X wrapped. It recounts the backstory of Mia Goth's titular character as a disturbed young girl, desperate for fame and attention coming of age on a farm in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Although it takes place in 1918, 
it's done in the style of technicolor melodramas from the 40s and 50s. So think saturated colors, sweeping orchestral scores, and sensationalized performances. I suppose the grainy black and white silent films of that era would not have made the best medium, although a Buster Keaton-esque slasher film would have been right up T. West's alley. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what they do with the upcoming third installment, Maxine, with three X's, which is set to directly follow the events of X. I expect it will be Showgirls meets Misery, and I'm here for it. Pearl is available for rent or purchase in all of the usual places. Support your local library. Mm-hmm. Did you see <laughs> Did you see those, Candace? I have not seen Pearl. those. No, I haven't, but Makes- your, your pitch of it made me want to. Yeah, make some time for it. I actually think I'd rather have seen Pearl before X, although I oh. think there's there's obviously like Easter eggs that you don't get, but um, I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? Watch it in release order? I actually like Pearl more than I like X. Ooh. So, But I would watch yeah. X first. I think that it's intended okay. to be seen first, for sure. That's cool. But okay. I, yeah, of the two, I, I think I like Pearl more. I liked yeah. X more. We watched them back to back. Mm-hmm. This weekend is how we saw him. So, yeah, Ben, you no get one. to be the tiebreaker. Ben, what do you what do you say? <laughs> I've only seen X, uh, yeah, and I know Al. that I liked it, but I forgot almost everything about it after I was done seeing it. So well, well, well. Really looks like know. Team X wins. Check me. <laughs> I've heard really. I haven't good seen Pearl, so I can't comment. Uh, ben, you're on my team, and we won. This is fine. Oh, someone picked me! Finally, it's happening. <laughs> Thank you. God. Yeah, have I have heard uh, universally good things about basically both films. Uh, Schlenzer, well, you though. were some sort of judge-type character, so what is your recommendation? Oh, I have the wig and gavel to prove it. So, for my recommendation, there is a directorial duo I've been keeping my eye on, and that's Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, and I am recommending their latest effort, 2022's Something in the Dirt. Benson and Moorhead have a talent for the strange and unnerving in their features, and in many ways, Something in the Dirt is either their most or least indulgent offering, I haven't quite decided, and they're seemingly poking fun at themselves and their process. You see, in this movie, it's about two friends that try to record and produce a documentary about strange events occurring in their apartment, but of course, there's more than meets the eye, and of course, the ending is a tad ambiguous. I'm really looking forward to seeing more from Benson and Moorhead. <laughs> you see? Yeah. yeah. And as so far, they have not missed the mark. So you can really see any of their movies, but, you know, we got to pick one to make the poster, you know, but they're all really good. <laughs> I'll pr- I mean, we'll probably recommend all the other ones they've done. Uh, Ryan, I, have you seen I, any I of their stuff? That, they yeah. did. Uh, I spring. have seen The Endless. That's the, the one Endless. that I've seen. Oh, and like Spring. I saw Spring, too. That was yeah. good. Yeah, and um, and then they did Synchronic. Yes, that's yeah. the one I... Uh, that's on the list. I still need mm-hmm. to watch it, but yeah. Yeah, I'm I liked that to one, it. too. We watched um, we watched both those. Something yes. in the Dirt is obviously a COVID pick, because it basically all takes place in, like, an apartment. And it stars yeah. them. They're it's basically... Budget, yeah. And they're the yeah. two stars. They're yeah. the two stars, which normally... I don't think they well, normally Well, just like are. they're in The Endless. Yeah, they're in the endless, endless, but they're not the main characters. Here, they're definitely the main characters. Yeah, they're like the only characters, really, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And they do that really great um, segment in VHS Viral um, with the skater kids uh, and the, like, Cthulhu cult. Um, Yeah, I mean, they definitely have a style, you know, and if they they stick with it, you know, I I think these guys might have a future in the pictures here. Cosmic (laughs) horror. 
Uh, Rye Guy, what's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation this week concerns one of the greatest directors of all time, one Stevie Spielberg. It's a recent <laughs> release titled The Fablemans. What? Now, Spielberg has been injecting his populist popcorn with elements of autobiography for as long as he's been making movies. But with The Fablemans, he's finally telling his childhood story without genre flourishes, and it lands with uh, precision accuracy. My only real complaint, at two and a half hours, it's actually too short. I would kill for a <clears throat> miniseries, Scenes from a Marriage Style, watching young Sammy Fableman discover his cinematic gifts in real time. The Fablemans is, as of this recording, currently in theaters, but if you're a deadbeat relying on streaming, it will probably be on Peacock in the near future. On what? Oh, sorry, on what? I'm not doing it again. Peacock! Peacock! <laughs> that's, that's your gag. Uh, hey. It's everyone's gag. We everyone's... all have one quarter of the show. We share gags. Big Ben, send us on home. Uh, I'm running out of slashers that I think are any good, so I'm going to recommend a recent film that sort of dips its toe into the horror genre and say so you should check out The Menu. There's no doubt critiquing food and drink is interesting. I certainly enjoy discussing the flavors and notes that I pick up in a glass of sake, but when does it go a bit too far? The Menu comes at that perfect time in history where people are taking their foodiness and snobbery to almost comical levels where a $1,000 plate of food isn't even filling anymore, and this deconstructed nature of it sometimes doesn't even resemble anything edible. And this is for a dish that can cost more than some families make in a week. That's where the menu really plays, uh, and it makes its commentary on the absurdity of it. But it also has something to say about the real joy of food, the people who prepare it and suffer for those flavors that you'll love, and the people who consume and evaluate it. It goes further into the discussion of art and when it stops being fun to create. I can imagine someone like George Lucas, who famously quit making Star Wars because fans stopped making the process fun. He would have a lot to identify with here. Which isn't to say that critiques are always bad, because artists do sometimes allow their, their work to grow further and further from the original genuinity of their product. It's one big gray area at times, but for me, the menu explored that relationship perfectly. Uh, it's currently in theaters, but if you're a degenerate that does streaming, Ryan can tell you where it might be. <laughs> It'll be on Hulu, folks. It'll be on Hulu. Hulu, Hulu folks. Yeah. That, no, that's not a joke. Now, you know, Ben, that wouldn't make them snobs. It would make them epicures. But by me telling epicures. you that, that makes me a snob. <laughs> That's true. Uh, ben, don't you think I'm you really buried a lead about that movie? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah Even more than who's actress in the movie. Who's... Oh, come on. Who's they're eating the movie, people, ben. right? That's the that twist. lady who's in everything, so I don't know if it counts. Like, why bring her up? Because she's in every movie this year. If she was in every movie, that'd be even better. ATJ. Mm -hmm. I love ATJ. Definitely gonna, definitely gonna watch it just for ATJ. I'm not gonna go to the theaters because I'm a degenerate, though. What, what is it with us all recommending new movies? What, what happened this week? We, we're uh, so cool. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't recommend a new movie. That's true. Thank you, Candice. <laughs> exactly. Super genuine. So uh, hands off of my recommendation next week, Glass Onion, Ryan. That's <laughs> my ah, damn it! Now I have to write a new you one. You guys can, I was just you kidding. can I'm rock just paper scissors shoot about it all later. This out. Cut there's all like of this out. There's forty more Charlie Bronson movies. There's enough for everyone. Come all on. of this is gone. It's cut. It's not in the episode. It's done. It's, almost, it's gonna stay because I need you know to run cut the it, time. Double it, triple it. <laughs> but with that, we are all out of show. But we want to thank our guest, Candy Candice Matillaro. Is that that's not right? Matillaro. It was a no. Y sound. Martillero. 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 If you sing yeah, it to Canyonero, it's easier. Matillero. Oh, wow. I don't know. 
Nope, there's uh, no but thank you, Candice, for joining us. <laughs> Candice, thank you for joining us so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, we'll have you back sometime soon, uh, and we'll try to practice your name. But, oh, uh, God, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't have high hopes for us. Uh, uh, but we hope everyone else will join us as well as the reels of justice keep turning. Count it. Corey. Please follow us on Twitter at Reels of Justice, Instagram Reels of Justice, and Facebook.com slash Reels of Justice.